You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we'll discuss the episode where everyone is missing. Hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so happy to be back here with all of you. Um, First and foremost, I hope that you all had an amazing holiday and that you're still sort of like riding this wave of holiday euphoria. Um, The thing that I'm going to miss the most about this holiday season is, of course, the Christmas carols. For example, do you hear what I hear? Well, I hope that you hear what I hear because my husband for my Christmas gift bought me like some really cool podcast equipment. I have a new mic. I have a new amp. I have all these things. I don't even know what they're called, but they are supposed to make the quality of the podcast like 10 times better at least. Um, And so I hope that you guys are receiving this clear quality on your end. So you'll have to let me know. Let me know if you like the way that it sounds. I'm super excited. I think that it's going to be great. Um, But just a reminder, next week after New Year's, it's going to be rough for all of us. The most Mondayest of Mondays is ahead. So please make sure to enjoy every last moment of this holiday break before we again rejoin the never-ending rat race that is our lives. (laughs) I hope that y'all miss my sarcasm and cynicism these last few days because it's going to be coming at ya hardcore in today's episode. Um, Before we begin this week's case, I just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping. First and foremost, if you're not already following me on my Instagram account at Unsolved, then you, my friend, have ruined Christmas. Why are you the way that you are? Why do you like to restrain joy? Are you some sort of psychopath? (laughs) Just kidding. But seriously, go hit the follow button on my Instagram so that you can know every single time an episode drops. You can also comment your thoughts, theories, and opinions about the cases that we cover. You can DM me a case suggestion, and you can hang out with me on stories once in a blue moon. Um, I promise I'm not one of those annoying accounts that's going to be harassing you and taking over your Instagram with notifications all the time. I am an introvert even in my social media efforts. Um, You should also visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge all 63, yeah, that's right, 63 of my true crime episodes all at once. Do you have 50 hours that you need to fill? I got you. Um, We haven't done a recap of an Unsolved Mysteries episode in quite a while, and with New Year's Eve around the corner, I've been thinking about my boyfriend, the love of my life. Mr. Robert Stack, Robbie, as I like to call him, because we graduated from first name to nickname basis. Um, So today we are going to be covering season one, episode eight of Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by my boo, Robert Stack, an episode that I have playfully renamed the episode where everyone is missing. The episode begins with my boyfriend, Robbie, in a very formal and beautiful location filled with thick white marble pillars. Robbie is dressed in a dark and dapper suit with a long black trench coat. 
You can't really say you've seen Robert Stack unless he's in one of these infamous trench coats. Robbie abruptly places both hands in his pockets when, with conviction, he says, three people whose fate remains a question mark. Perhaps tonight will provide some answers. Are you ready to help Robert solve the mystery? Put your thinking caps on. The first story is about a woman who goes missing from Gothenburg, Nebraska. I, if you've been following this podcast for a while, was briefly in Nebraska this past summer, and I can tell you that the location footage that they showed on Unsolved Mysteries in this episode is legit. It exactly looks like the town I raced all over trying to find a decent bathroom because I had to go real bad. Gothenburg is charming, quiet, and quaint. It's also one of those little towns that I would not want my car to break down because I don't want to get murdered by some sheriff's cousin. And then they're like, oh, well, he's my cousin. Let's just sweep it under the rug. Like, it seems like a town where everybody knows everybody. I don't like that. Too many people that are going to cover up a crime if a crime happens to me. Um, So like I said, there's a strong sense of community in Gothenburg. And it would have to be because the town only occupies 3,000 residents. Um, It would make sense to me that when someone in their tiny town is in trouble or possibly in danger, they would all rally together to help. Because as you know, in most tiny towns, your business isn't yours for very long. On December 11th, 1987, a housewife named Christy Nichols vanished. Her disappearance became a controversy that continues to this day. Christy married Mark when she was just a little baby, 19 years old. Soon after they married, they had a daughter, and then a few years later, they had a son. Those who knew Christy knew that her life centered around her children. Her mom, Connie, says, Christy was a very good student and nice-looking girl, and people liked her, but she always had kind of a negative self-image, and I think Christy never felt she did anything until she had her children and there was something she could look at and say hey I did this pretty well nobody can do this any better because she was just so proud of her children she she loved them I would have never thought that Christy would would run away she never she would have never left her children I would have never believed that Okay, so Connie's statement brings up a lot of points, the first of which is that Christy had very low self-esteem, which may help us to make sense of the fact that she got married so young, and she also got married to a man who you'll see in good time throughout this episode may not have been the best choice. Uh, There are so many people in the world um, with low self-esteem, and even the people that you wouldn't think have it, have it. (laughs) I am the oldest of 20 female cousins. And I just think that they are some of the most beautiful people on this planet. They are gorgeous. They are talented. They are smart. And wouldn't you know, these silly, silly girls don't know how pretty they are. It's so infuriating that they aren't able to see themselves through my eyes. And yeah, I think that there are a lot of people out there struggling a similar battle. I know that I personally used to be that way when I was in my teens, but around my 20th birthday, I just began to really let go of all of those insecurities. And I don't exactly know like what the exact catalyst was. I mean, it certainly could have been the fact that I lost 180 pounds. 
better known as my loser ex-boyfriend. <laughs> but that definitely, definitely probably had something to do with it. But I also just stopped worrying about what other people thought about me and started to really focus on what I wanted out of this life. I think what really kind of made me do the 180 is just the realization that people are always going to have shit to say about you. They're always going to have shit to say. Like if there is one constant in this life, it's that people will always have shit to say. (laughs) And you can either not be who you are and pretend to be somebody else so that you can conform and they're still going to have shit to say about you. Or you can just do what you want to do and at least you're happy. You know what I'm saying? Um, But I definitely know that it's easier said than done for sure. But it really makes life so much sweeter if you can make the switch. It's so worth it. Another trigger that I see here um, that really has nothing to do with her disappearance but is troubling to me is that Christy felt the only thing she had ever done right was to be a mom to her children. And I think it's absolutely incredible that she was a great mom. Like, I don't want to take away from that. There are so many not so great moms and dads out there. But what makes me sad is that being a mom is the only thing she ever felt good at. I wish I could have told her, like, hey, let's go develop more of a sense of self than being a mom. Like, yes, you are a mom, but you are also a person with thoughts, feelings, ideas, and dreams, and you deserve to discover yourself via hobbies or a career that you choose to pursue simply for you. A friend of mine, um, her name is Dr. Julie Hanks. She's awesome. Go look at her on her Instagram. She always says, this is something she always says, she says, motherhood is a relationship not a role, which I love. And I really feel like Christy would have benefited from hearing that as well. Anyways, those are just my two cents, but back to Christy. So Christy's husband, Mark Nichols, at the time that the Unsolved Mysteries episode was released, at least, was known to be a mechanic. He was the last known person to see Christy alive, and he has been dodging a ton of rumors about being involved for quite some time. Many people in this tiny town of Gothenburg blame him for her disappearance. People in small towns, they talk a lot. And a lot of these rumors tend to get pretty vicious. There's been a couple rumors that I chopped her up and put her in garbage bags and buried her at the dump. That's one of the first ones I heard. And that one really got to me. Because I guess they were actually up there digging, (laughs) digging around. Mark claims his innocence, but the reality is is that until Christy Nichols is found, there will always be a dark cloud of suspicion over Mark's head. And for good reasons that we're going to discuss. Since Christy went missing, no one has heard from her. For this reason, the Nebraska State Patrol was put in charge of the case. Officer Terry Ahrens says that the more they look into this case, the more and more it's looking like a foul play situation. When Christy disappeared, the Nichols marriage was in dire straits. The officers learned that Christy had been seeing another man. They also learned that 10 days before her disappearance, Christy had gone to an emergency room to be treated for a sprained thumb. Mark Nichols went to the emergency room but was asked to stay outside of the patient examination room so that the doctor could talk to Christy alone. The injury occurred during a confrontation with Mark. Mark said that the two had been arguing about Christy yet again wanting to go out on the town and Christy had burned him with a lit cigarette. In retaliation, he said that he pushed her onto the bed. She landed funny and had sprained her thumb. 
Well, he doesn't actually say bed. <laughs> he says waterbed. Ah, the putrid aftertaste of the 80s. The ER doctor says, I saw Christy on the Friday after Thanksgiving. She came to the emergency room complaining of a sore thumb. She was acting like a scared rabbit, if you will. She's never been one for great eye contact or been very verbal. She obviously wasn't telling me everything either. Mark was in the hallway nearby, and I couldn't, looking back, really tell if it was reassuring for her to have Mark there or not. Christy also told a cousin, a cousin named Deborah, that Mark was abusing her physically. Christy worked at a bar, and this is where Deborah and her talked about things without fear that, like, Mark would overhear their conversation. Christy apparently told Deborah that Mark was beating her up, and after her shift was over, even lifted up her shirt to show her cousin a large bruise on her back, supposedly inflicted by Mark. Deborah, like any good cousin and human being, adamantly encouraged Christy to get out of this relationship. Deborah said that she was really scared for her cousin Christy, especially since Christy talked about the whole ordeal as if it wasn't a massive deal. Um, Mark denies this, of course. On December 9th, two days before her disappearance, Christy went to a neighboring town to meet with an attorney. Uh, she wanted to do this um, because she didn't want it getting back to Mark, but she really needed help. She wanted to know how she could safely end this marriage. The attorney said that Chrissy was terrified about Mark finding out. He said that Chrissy was distressed, fearful, and was really kind of using him as a last resort. When Chrissy disclosed to her attorney some of the abuses that she had endured, the attorney decided to make a couple of telephone calls to the authorities to report certain crimes. The attorney said the rumors Mark alludes to are false. He said he sees no conceivable motive as to why Christie would make up these physical abuse accusations. When asked about Christie's state of mind when she left the attorney's office, he said that she was hopeful. Um, she even scheduled an appointment to see him later on in the week. So there was no reason for him to believe that she was planning on ditching town running away, it seemed like she was gaining the momentum that she needed to face this divorce head on. The day after this meeting, Christy and Mark went Christmas shopping with their children. This was the last afternoon that Christy would spend with her family. That evening, the couple hired a babysitter and went on a date to a local bar, the same one where Christy worked. The babysitter said when she was hired to babysit, she was very surprised that Mark and Christy were going out together. Even the babysitter knew that the relationship between these two people was very rocky. Mark says that the date went really well. Um, he says that Christy had a good attitude, that she was laughing and carrying on. After the bar, they drove to a local 24-7 Mart, and around 12.30, they started their drive home. According to the babysitter, Mark arrived home around 12.30, 1 o'clock. The babysitter was doing her homework in front of the TV when Mark arrived, um, but she doesn't remember seeing Christy at all. Mark claims that Christy went into the house first and that he was about five or six yards behind her. He claims that Christy walked past the babysitter, walked past the living room without saying hello, and went to go check on the children, and then she went to the bathroom. 
The babysitter said that Mark paid her in cash when Christy usually paid with a check. She said that it was actually pretty unusual for Mark to pay her as Christy normally handled that. The babysitter said that she stayed packing up her things into her backpack and chatting with Mark for about five to eight minutes. And in all that time, she never saw Christy, never heard Christy, never heard a toilet flush or anything. And she basically says like, yeah, I didn't see Christy. And like, I guess that's not too weird, but I didn't even hear her. And I feel like I would have heard footsteps. According to Mark, Christy went to bed immediately after the babysitter left. The last time Mark claims he saw Christy was at 2 a.m. when he himself went to sleep beside her. And that's the last thing he remembered um, before his children woke him up the next morning. Mark said that he saw that Christy wasn't in bed beside him. Um, He walked around the house looking for her and found that a suitcase was missing. Both family cars were still in the driveway. At 9.30 that morning, Chrissy's mother called to talk to her. Even though Mark knew that Chrissy was missing, he told her mom that she was sleeping because she didn't feel well. Mark claims he did this as to not alarm Chrissy's mother, who lived about 100 miles away, but many people believe that Mark did this to buy himself some time. Even in the interview for Unsolved Mysteries, Mark's neck looks pretty sweaty and flushed when he recalls this account. At 11.30 a.m., Mark took his children over to Christy's grandmother to watch them. Christy's grandmother said at the time she didn't think anything of it, but later on, she realized how odd it was that they never called before showing up. Uh, They just showed up, and that was unusual because normally they would call and be like, hey, is it okay if we bring the kids over? Um, The grandmother also says that she found it strange that if Mark was really looking for his wife, as he claimed, How come he didn't ask her grandmother if she was there or if she had seen Christy recently? That would seem like a pretty good place to start. Uh, Reaching out to those close to Christy to see where she might be. Mm, I don't know. Mark claims he spent two hours searching for Christy around town. He said that he hoped to see her at a nearby friend's or maybe coming out of a store or a gas station. The Nebraska Patrol says that when they checked out Mark's story... Uh, The story about Mark running all over town in search for his missing wife. Nothing checked out. Nobody claims that they saw him. And remember, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny town. If he had been out there looking, someone would have seen him. I think that this story that Mark has concocted is a load of le caca. Later that same day, Mark filed a missing persons report. Mark said he was real upset because there was no indication to him that Christy would ever leave him. By that same token, however, a day after Christy went missing, Mark and the kids moved out of their home. Then, a week later, Mark packed up all of Christy's clothes and boxes and sold both of their family cars. In March of 1988, three months after Christy's disappearance, a suitcase filled with her clothes was found alongside of a highway. But it didn't seem like it had been thrown out of a moving vehicle. It looked like it had been carefully placed there. And not too long ago. Certainly not three months ago. 
Police found it suspicious not only that it was being found now and in such pristine condition, but that it also contained, with precise detail, all of the things Mark had said would be in it. My wife had left me. I wouldn't be able to look through the closet and tell you what she had taken. I probably would be able to tell you maybe what suitcase she had taken. But he was listing items of clothing right down the line that knew what she had taken. Okay, does this ring true to anybody else? Because I think that this is so true, at least for me and Brian. Like, Brian has no freaking clue what I own. So if I went missing and he looked inside of my closet, he wouldn't even know where to begin to, like, tell the police what I brought with me. And I think that most husbands are that way. Hell, I don't think I'd be able to tell someone what Brian took with him either. And his wardrobe is about like one thirty-eighth of mine. <laughs> um, but in re- regards to this case, going back to it, no other clues have ever emerged about Chrissy Nichols. For now, at least when the episode was released, the case is stalled. The police say that without finding Chrissy Nichols or her body, it would be difficult to successfully press any type of charge against Mark. They are basically concerned about the way that she disappeared, the way she hasn't contacted any family member, especially her mother and her children, and the fact that she didn't take a family vehicle and there's nothing to suggest an alternative mode of transportation. They don't mention the other man at all in this episode, which I think is really pertinent. Um, Remember, they said that Christy had been seeing another man. I mean, I assume he's been investigated and ruled out, but they don't mention it at all in this episode. Mark, of course, says that he has nothing to do with Christy's disappearance. He admits that many people think that he's a violent person, but he adamantly denies these claims. Mark says he wants Chrissy to come home, and if she doesn't want to come home, at least call someone and let them know that she's all right. In 2020, an update was made on this case, but not anything that would help us know what happened. It was essentially a plea by Chrissy Nichols' children who are now grown. The letter states, quote, While leads in this case have dwindled to just a few each year, each one is as important and followed up on exhaustedly. The letter continues, quote, Once again, we ask the public to please come forward with any information, no matter how seemingly unimportant you might think it is. It might just be the piece of the puzzle that is needed to bring closure to Christy Joe's family, end quote. This cold case has received tons of media attention. While there are many theories as to what might have happened to her, they are all speculation. Attempts over the years to get authorities to open a grand jury investigation have been turned down due to lack of evidence. The case remains open, and within the past couple of weeks, a letter from local authorities has generated a lot of activity. It is the hope of everyone involved that the renewed attention might generate new leads, which could finally potentially solve the question of what happened to Christy Joe. The next story in the episode is about a convict who escaped from one of the most notorious prisons in our nation. While filming in San Quentin Prison and with a straight face as guards open the door for him like the Duke of Unsolved Mysteries, Robert Stack seriously disses the prison when he essentially tells them to their face that their strong prison failed by letting a prisoner escape. Robert Stack, 
What a boss. What a vibe. What a mood. In the summer of 1986, Mark Adams escaped from San Quentin Prison. But why was Mark Adams there? Let's go back to the summer of 1979. On that evening, three high school boys went to a baseball field in Modesto, California. The three boys gathered in the dugout to hide and drink beers, talk about school, chicks, and their friends, when three figures appeared out of the darkness. So over the previous few weeks, there had been several reports of these three ski mass individuals holding people up and robbing them of their petty cash. In the previous attempts, no one had been injured other than their pride, but tonight was different. Maybe because the three mass individuals had never before encountered the ego of three high school boys. One of the boys said, yeah, you know what? Why don't you just leave us alone? Okay, and slide detour here, but you're not a very good criminal if you think robbing three teenage boys is a good idea. They don't have any money, and the money that they do have, they just spend it on booze. These kids don't even have a car. What did you think you were going to get out of them? Like $3 and maybe like a couple tickets from the local arcade? I mean, get real. Anyway, the three mass figures get super upset that like the boys are not cooperating and they shoot them execution style. One boy dies and the other two were wounded. Uh, then the police, they end up finding the assailants, who are also three teenage boys, so it's making a little bit more sense why they're so stupid. Um, I mean, they had massive amounts of testosterone pumping through their little veins. Um, but they do end up finding out that the trigger man was 16-year-old Mark Adams, and he was tried and convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life. At the time that this episode was released, 3,000 men called San Quentin home. Charles Manson was only one of its infamous criminals. Johnny Cash was a regular not only to write about San Quentin, but also to visit it and play for the convicts. It is the end of the line for many hardened criminals. When Adams entered San Quentin, he was just 19 years old, as he had aged out of the juvenile detention center that he had been sent to immediately after his sentencing. After being in San Quentin for about six months, his restrictions became more relaxed. Um, he was able to get a job where he had access to a computer. Michael, who is a corrections officer at the prison, said that Mark Adams is what they would refer to as a, quote, model prisoner. Um, he says that he worked well with others, he obeyed the rules, and wouldn't you know, he would seize any opportunity to get out of his cell. Hmm, that didn't ring any alarm bells for you, Sparky. Okay, I'm afraid for humanity. Michael, this beautiful, beautiful dummy, said he's certain Mark took advantage of this position. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. On June 10th, 1986, Adam secured an authorized pass allowing him to leave work early. He was apparently going to go see the prison dentist. Around 2.30 p.m., Mark approached the first checkpoint and was seen walking towards the dentist's office. This was the last time anyone saw him. At 4.15, inmates have to return to their cells for head count. The count takes about 45 minutes. If someone is missing, most often there's like a simple explanation. But if not, they redo the count and that can take another 45 minutes, even an hour. It was during that redo that Adams was confirmed missing. Immediately, San Quentin went into lockdown. All prisoners were confined to their cells. Their privileges became revoked. 
any work truck inside was stuck inside, any work truck stuck outside was turned away, an intense search was fruitless. No trace of Mark Adams or how he escaped was ever found. Officers have three theories as to how they think Mark might have escaped. The first suggests that Adams got a hold of civilian clothes somehow, put them on, and walked out with other visitors passing through three different armed gates. In order to accomplish this, he would have had to show a photo ID at the first two gates. Another theory is that Mark just scaled the wall. Now we get to listen to a guard who will proceed to mansplain to us how one would go about scaling a prison wall undetected. Let's listen to what this mansplainer has to say. When an inmate has to make that move from a blind spot over the wall, he has to go from an area of concealment to one of visibility. It can happen in a matter of seconds, but in those few moments that it took to hit the wall and scale it, the officer's looking in another direction, an escape is perpetrated. Whoa, 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 hold up, wait a minute, I'm trying to take notes here, jeez. Wow. Didn't he describe that so well? You know, I didn't understand it. And then his beautiful mansplaining. And now I get it. I just understand it now. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks for explaining that. Very incredibly simple concept to me. Thanks. Um, Another way is that maybe he gained access to a vehicle. Um, They think that it's possible that he could have hidden successfully during a garden inspection and then driven straight to freedom, just kind of like piggybacking on a work truck or something. And that's certainly possible. When this episode originally aired, Mark Adams had been missing for two years. And in those two years, officers had not found any convincing evidence to prove how Mark Adams escaped. Breaking news. Seven years after his escape, five years after this episode aired, Mark Adams was captured in Puerto Rico and returned to San Quentin. Home, sweet home. Um, A year later, though, he was shot and killed by a prison guard when he assaulted a fellow inmate. And you know what? Adams never revealed how he escaped from San Quentin prison. So that is still a mystery. A final suck it, you might say. Um, Our next story is about a con man. In 1981, Lorraine Ronda was 68 years old and was recently widowed. Her husband had left her $100,000, about $350,000 today. It was all Lorraine had. She invested it with a man named Stephen Cox. In 1976, a drunk driver left Michelle Whip confined to a wheelchair for life. The insurance company awarded her with $75,000. She, too, invested her money with a man named Stephen Cox. In 1984, Stephen Cox and the money disappeared, and he has not been seen since. A bankruptcy court in Portland, Oregon, has a hefty audience of people with similar tales— All of them had invested large amounts of their money, large amounts of their life savings with Stephen Cox, and they were obviously extremely pissed about it. They told authorities that as a group, they had invested almost $3.5 million, which adjusted for inflation, almost $11 million today. Holy crap. How on earth is it that Stephen Cox was entrusted with all this money? How did he do it? Take some notes, people. 
Well, you see, Stephen was a hometown boy. He actually grew up in the town that he would later swindle. People knew him and they trusted him. In high school, Stephen had been a popular student, an athlete. He was captain of the basketball and football team and also played varsity of the baseball team. Come on, guys. He played sports, so there's no way he would grow up to be a piece of shit. (laughs) I kid. I kid. But I do get a little annoyed when people bring this up in true crime documentaries as if playing some sort of organized sport in high school makes you immune to being a garbage human being. I'm not saying that if you play sports in high school, you will grow up to be a piece of shit. But if you are a piece of shit, chances are you played an organized sport in high school. (laughs) I'm sorry, but am I right or am I right? I just feel like I'm going to get so much hate for this. Stephen went to college. Um, he married Deborah, who was his college sweetheart, and then returned home to Medford. In 1982, he started his own company, S.D. Cox Investment. When he first began, his intentions were good. He had, um, had some good luck, and he really wanted to make money for other people. Somewhere along the lines, though, things changed. Cox reached out and made deals with investors who fronted him some money. In return, they had Cox's word that they would receive their money back and then some. Basically, a glorified IOU. Michelle Whip, a woman who invested $75K from her insurance company, needed $1,200 a month to live and pay for that specialized care. She said that Cox always made sure that she had it. Despite the lack of security, she decided that it was worth the risk of investing even more money with Stephen. Michelle said he seemed to know what he was doing, so she trusted him. Cox's business doubled and then tripled. Eugene, an old friend of Stephen, was brought on the team as a partner. Eugene, who claims to be a victim throughout this entire episode, is also a piece of shit, so he probably knew Stephen through their various romps on the field, no doubt, but don't let him fool you. Eugene was the forceful personality that actually went out and got the investments from this these innocent, vulnerable people. Uh, Eugene claims that he would always tell people what their, that their money was at risk and that there was no guarantee that they'd make anything. But half of the people making the complaint say that this is just a flat-out lie. But hey, don't take it from me. Let's cut to Lorraine. Well, Eugene Richmond is a liar then because he never did. Never told us that. Not me. Never told me that. Don't worry, Lorraine. I believe you. Eugene, do you have anything to say for yourself? If she was not aware that her money was at risk, then either I failed in my job to tell her that. Yeah. Okay, Eugene. I think I'm going to believe Lorraine on this one. Sorry, not sorry. Due to the success of the company, Stephen and Eugene purchased a restaurant a local bar, an arcade, and a few jewelry stores. Eugene said that towards the end, people in Medford were intoxicated by the facade that was Stephen Cox. He said that they would see the Porsche and their heads would turn and they'd say to themselves, wow, Stephen is a success. Eugene says that what they didn't know is that Stephen was two to three months late on the payments of that Porsche. In 1984, the business began to crumble. Eugene said that in his opinion, quote, Stephen was not a good businessman. He made wrong decisions, end quote. Uh, Eugene claims that there was a restaurant and some real estate deals that hadn't worked out as they had hoped, and they were 
bleeding the company dry. Eugene had told Stephen that they needed to cut off those deals that they were just feeding, but Stephen didn't want to. He wanted to hold on to them. Eugene said Stephen didn't want to lose. Analysts claim that in the beginning, he got some success, which gave him a hot head, and he created this sort of like pyramid scheme. There was no way that they could make it work. The business was a house of cards. One little breeze is going to get knocked over. Eugene, being a ride or die of Stephen, even went back to Lorraine and secured her final $5,000 in savings. When asked about that, Eugene says, he can't recall. He just I can't recall uh, swindling a little old lady. Okay. I guess we can't charge you then with anything. Hmm. All right, guys. Leave him alone. Let's pack it up. Eugene cannot recall. I'm going to have to raise the BS flag on that one. Yeah, I'm not believing that. One night, Steve said he was leaving town. He knew the business was a crap shoot and he didn't want to stay and face the music so he told Eugene to come Eugene had two choices at this point leave with Stephen or stay and face the wrath of a town on behalf of Stephen Eugene took the coward's way and like a lackey followed Stephen this was premeditated for about a month before they just like stopped showing up to work. They told everyone in the office on Friday that they'd be gone on Monday, but that they'd be back on Tuesday. That weekend, Eugene says that Stephen cleaned out the $200,000 that was in the office safe. Notice how he says Stephen did it so he doesn't get in trouble when we all know damn well that he was more than likely holding the bag. Cox also stole all of their financial records. Cox and his wife, Deborah emptied their house and packed everything into a moving truck. They then departed Medford in the middle of the night like rats or cockroaches scattering across the floor. Their final destination, Hawaii. They dropped out of sight and the Medford community was out $3.5 million, which as you remember is more like $11 million today. But this story is not over because it wasn't the money they owed the citizens of Medford that caused them to flee. No, no, no. These people are victims. They're victims just like the people that they swindled. They fled because they feared for their lives. Ten months after their disappearance, officers got a surprise visitor, Deborah Cox, Stephen's wife. She returned to Medford and through her attorney agreed to talk to police. She, Deborah, actually wasn't wanted as far as being a fugitive, but the authorities certainly wanted to talk to her. Within a week, Eugene also surrendered himself. He was interviewed and processed for his outstanding warrants. The interviews with both Deborah and Eugene were not useful, as I would assume because these two individuals probably can't get too in-depth with the truth without also implicating themselves. A lot of pleading the fifth in these interviews. What they did learn from Eugene was that in 1983, they had gotten involved with a mysterious investor. He had invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into the company. As this was such a liability for them, he had also taken out a hefty life insurance policy out on Eugene and Stephen. Before they left town, Eugene suggested filing for Chapter 11. But Stephen said that they couldn't. If he didn't pay this mysterious investor back, the individual would have them both killed. 
The police now know who this mysterious investor is, so it would be pretty stupid for him to follow through on killing them. Um, But Eugene spent two years in prison for his involvement, and at the time the episode was aired, Stephen was still at large. Breaking news. Stephen Cox was arrested in Lake Mead, Nevada, five days after the Unsolved Mystery episode aired. He fled from Boise to a little motel room. He registered under the name John Strauss. The innkeeper said that he was not their typical guest because he stayed in his room all day long and would only leave at night. They noticed that although he claimed to be from Arizona, his license plates were from Idaho. That made them suspicious, but there wasn't anything they could really do about it. You can't arrest someone for being a little weirdo. One day, two weeks later, The innkeeper saw Stephen come out of his little room and throw his trash into a neighbor's trash can, and she found that to be odd. When she went to go empty that trash, she found a crumpled up letter, and she said, like any curious female, I read the letter. When she read the letter, she saw something about the Unsolved Mystery Show being a bombshell. The innkeeper showed the letter to her husband, and together they decided it was time to call the rangers and get this fool out of their hair. Stephen Cox was apprehended and only served two years of a 20-year sentence for racketeering and fraud, white-collar crime being punished at its finest. Just when you think the episode is over, Robert Stack comes out and delivers a doozy. You see, apparently Robert Stack and the police department in Philadelphia were seeking the help of their viewership to help apprehend the person responsible for the murder of a four-year-old girl. Barbara Jean lived with her parents and was playing out in her front yard around 3 p.m. Her father went to go check on her, but he couldn't find her anywhere. He checked with neighbors and then called the police. Two hours later, Barbara Jean was found two blocks away, stuffed into a cardboard box. She had been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death. Four witnesses claimed that they saw a man carrying the cardboard box. The witness said, that he was approximately 25 to 35 years old with sandy brown hair. They said that he had brown eyes and was about 5'10 to 6 feet tall, and that he weighed about 180 pounds. The box that he carried her little body in had previously carried a TV. They pled with the viewers to please let them know if they know of anyone who might have bought a TV recently who fits that description. Breaking news, Barbara Jean Horn's neighbor, Walter Ogrod, was convicted of her murder and sentenced to death. However, in 2020, not too long ago, it was determined that Ogrod had been wrongfully accused and was released. This case remains unsolved. What do you make of these cases? Two out of the four are still unsolved. So, what do you think about Chrissy Nichols? Do you think she escaped her marriage? Do you think her life ended in foul play? Do you think we'll ever solve the mystery behind what happened to her even after 30 years? And what about Barbara Jean Horn? Who do you think did this to her? And what is it going to take for us to find them? Let me know in the comments on the post I made about this episode today on my Instagram account at Mystery Still Unsolved. Thank you all for being here. I hope you all have an amazing, awesome end to the current year and an amazing start to the new one. I believe anything is possible in 2022, and that goes for all of us. Thank you for your continued support. I look forward to providing you with even more great content in the year to come. 
If you wish to further support this podcast, you can follow me on Instagram. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved. Tell a true crime-loving friend or family about me. But as always, the best way to support this podcast is to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?